Hello, this is Adal Neme from DataCup, and welcome to Data Framed, a podcast covering all things data and its impact on organizations across the world. You know, oftentimes when we discuss the value data science brings to the table, a lot of the focus shifts to difficult to achieve machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'd argue, though, that 80% of the value when doing data science comes from data-driven decision-making at scale. This is where business intelligence comes into the picture, equipping decision makers with the proper context and insight to make better decisions with data. This is why I'm excited to speak to Andy Cotgrieve on today's episode of Data Framed. Andy is the co-author of The Big Book of Dashboards and is technical evangelist at Tableau. He is the host of the If Data Could Talk podcast, co-host of the Chart Chat podcast, and he's also a columnist for Information Age. He was on the 2021 Data IQ Top 100 Most Influential People in Data. With over 15 years of experience in the industry, he has inspired thousands of people with technical advice and ideas on how to identify trends and visual analytics and develop their own data discovery skills, and I had an awesome conversation with him today. Throughout the episode, Andy discusses his background, the skills every analyst should know to equip organizations with better data-driven decision-making, his best practices for data storytelling, how he thinks about data literacy and ways to spread it within the organization, the importance of community when creating a data-driven organization, and more. Also, we'd absolutely love your feedback on how we can make Data Framed a better show for you and which guests you think we should bring on to the show. I left a survey link in the episode description. Make sure to fill it out as I'd greatly appreciate it. Andy, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on the show, Adele. You're someone who has a very prolific career in the data space and are a fountain of knowledge when it comes to data visualization and data storytelling. I'm excited to discuss all of that with you today, but I'd love to first start off by discussing your background. Uh, Being a technical evangelist at Tableau, I'm sure you get a lot of questions of what that entails and how did you end up here. So I'd love to first learn about your background, specifically what was the path you took that led you here? So I'm technical evangelist at Tableau. I've been at Tableau for 10 years and I first downloaded Tableau in November 2007. The product didn't do very much back then, but it was still the best piece of software on the market. It blew my mind and it enabled completely new things that we were not able to do. So it's been an incredible 14-year journey. Prior to that, I was um, so I was an analyst at the University of Oxford at that time, trying to track student data, um, and we just needed tools that were better. But how did I get there? Prior to that, I was working for a business research company, and at that company... My boss was always asking me questions about progress for my project. And, you know, my colleagues was just giving him reams of Word documents. I was like, there must be a better way. And I ended up building this front page on an Excel spreadsheet, which had a bunch of charts on it and summarized what was going on. I didn't even know they were called dashboards at that point. But, you know, I was like, well, here, here you go, boss. Here's one page. And somewhere along that process, I learned that that's called dashboard. I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. It's a way of summarizing information. Um, the, the, my earlier part of my career, you know, I'd left school wanting to go into art and do comics, but I ended up doing geography. Then I ended up doing compu- computer science. I was a software engineer. I did uh, business research. And I basically did this whole gamut of skills, art, creativity, engineering, database, communication, design. That when I finally got to Tableau, Tableau and really dug into what a data analyst should be, I realized I'd somehow amassed all the skills that you need to really do this role to the full. 
you know, it's five years since I became Tableau's technical evangelist. Uh, and that role, that job is essentially using my wisdom and expertise to bring that expertise and passion to the field to as many people as I can. And, well, and then hopefully bring them to Tableau because that's my favorite platform of choice. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, that, that's the career summary in a nutshell. That's awesome. And there's definitely a lot of wisdom to unpack here. So, you know, preparing for this interview was quite difficult because there's a lot of different angles by which we can approach this conversation. Um, however, one thing I definitely wanted to pick your brains on is really the importance of data storytelling as well as the role of the data analyst in a modern data-driven organization. Uh, I think we often talk about data scientists as the primary role uh, for bringing value from data in an organization. But I'd argue scaling the amount of data-driven decisions an organization makes is 80% of the value, you know, in the data pyramid. And this is something owned by analysts as much as the data scientists. Uh, with that context, I'd love to learn what you think are the main skills needed to be a successful data analyst today. It's a really interesting question. And my top answer is curiosity, right? It's not even a technical skill. Uh, in order to be a data analyst, you've got to be able to hunt out what it is the data is telling you. You've got to be able to hunt out what it is your users are asking for. And you've got to be able to explore and iterate to find the best articulation of those two things. What's the data telling you? How should it be communicated? So, you, you know, that curiosity feeds... Uh, a sense of empathy as well, right? Because I could be a hardcore data nerd, but if I can't actually express that to the end, to, to other people, express the, what I'm finding on my insights, then well, what's the point, right? You know, I think sometimes we can over-focus on the technical skills and forget that it's like, okay, you've you've collected your data, you've prepared it, you've done something really whizzy technically, but can people see and understand what it is you found. And if they can't, then you missed it out. So curiosity and empathy are kind of the core skills, you know, underpinning that, you know, the balance of engineering and design skills are also really important. But I think we maybe we can explore that a little bit deeper uh, in, in, in a moment. But yeah, curiosity, I'm going to say. 100%. And you mentioned here technical skills, engineering skills, and I'm excited to unpack all of those with you. I'd love to expand on what you think are the technical skills needed for a successful data analyst today. And where do you think Tableau fits in the picture and the wider tool ecosystem an analyst needs to know? Fundamentally, you need to get up to date on your database skills. Uh, so learning SQL are clearly going to be a huge skill. Uh, when I started in this field, it was really only relational databases. So understanding, you know, data structures and SQL, fantastic. Obviously, you know, since I've, the, the world has, has, has developed, um, you know, there's not unstructured data. There are many more different types of data models. Uh, so, you know, really getting in your JSON, your XML, all of that stuff is going to really help you. To be a successful data analyst and data scientist, you you don't have to be, you don't have to be super, super deep into those skills. Uh, you, you know, there are different paths you can take within the data analyst career, but you have to have a good foundation in that knowledge because otherwise none of what, you, none of what you're going to do is going to be, or you're not going to understand, you know, any of what you're going to do. So I think that's um, a, a real challenge, right? Then, so that's kind of data structure, data architecture. You're going to do a lot of data preparation, cleaning, 
uh, and at, at that point, you th- you know, your database structure is going to be great. But then you've got to think, well, what tools do I need to do this? Obviously, we have Tableau Prep. That's, you know, wonder- I love using Tableau Prep. But again, getting your head around, you know, merging fields, processing data and, you know, transformations, pivots, that kind of thing is also uh, key. And then at the, at the higher or the more front end customer end, you've got the analytics uh, tools. So, you know, then it's, there are many tools in the market. Obviously, Tableau is amazing. But as you say, R, Python, um, you know, these are all great skills to get into your portfolio. Um, for anybody who's really early in their career, you know, just start developing skills in one one tool of choice. And as your career grows, you know, the, the, the path of your career might steer you towards one or other newer tools. Obviously, technical skills are very important, but data visualization skills are also extremely important for data analysts. I've seen you speak about this, you've written a book on this, and you've even extended this to say that data specialists should think like designers. I'd love it if you can expand that notion and what you think thinking like a designer means, and what are the design skills data data experts need to know to be successful in data visualization? So this is something I'm so passionate about. And um, there was, uh, there's a woman called Kim Reese. She co-founded Periscopic, which is a, a non-profit data visualization and consultancy in Oregon in the US. And uh, she sat on um, on an episode of Policy Viz, which is another great podcast, uh, about five years ago. She said, data visualization is a language, a means to convey an opinion or an argument. And that that quote... I mean, that, that has stuck with me and sort of become my, you know, one of my North Star pieces of inspiration because in that, it, it captures the fact that at our peril, we think charts are truths. It's like, I have aggregated the data and I've made a bar chart and therefore that bar is bigger than that one. It's true. It's an uncontrovertible fact. It's like, no, because of that aggregation and that visualization in a, in, in a certain way. And you can make hugely different you can make charts tell hugely different stories with subtle choices of aggregations or design or color choice orientation the title annotations all of these things can change how the end users interpret the chart and i find that absolutely fascinating and the reason why design skills are so important is that you need to be able to wield that power deliberately right you know, you could wield that power and frame arguments accidentally. Uh, you could even, some people do it deceptive, deliberately deceive with the way they uh, frame charts. So to be super powerful at this, you have to know when to turn these some of these levers up or down to push an opinionated thing or to try and be neutral and also to be able to critique other, other people's works and see when they might have made, inadvertently swung you one way or another and have that critique so i design is it's just absolutely fundamental to things um you know think about dashboards so you know i co-wrote the big book of dashboards 28 real world case studies that we uh, dissected and sort of described how they worked and you're creating an object that is consumed by other people that's what Apple does with iPhones. That's what Samsung does with TV remote controls. Even your kettle, even your washing machine. They are designed objects that have to satisfy uh, various different levels of processing. Um, 
a great book. Another great book is Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things, another huge influence on me. And in that book, Don Norman says that any object that is designed is processed in three ways by every end user. There is a visceral level of processing, a behavioral, and a reflective. That visceral is the millisecond, first millisecond of, of experience with that object where people judge it on how it looks. It's unescapable. So if your dashboard looks awful, you've already lost half your audience. So you've got to make something look good. You know, iPhones look great for a reason, right? Um, you, you know, nice kettles look great when they're, when they're really nicely designed. And then the behavioral level is, well, okay, you've got this object. Can the person trying to use that object do the thing they want to do with it, right? Or is it too complicated? Um, you know, Don Norman has the example of uh, doors in buildings that, that are designed to be pushed, but they have a pull handle on them. Right, and that's a sort of a confusing user experience because it looks like a pull handle, and so the behaviorally it's a bit confusing. But again, that's you've got to put that into your dashboards. Can people actually work out how to interact with that that dashboard to answer the questions? And finally, after that, they will reflect and think, "I did or I didn't like that dashboard." And if that reflection is successful, they will come back. So it's no good being an engineer and just thinking the power of my engineering will succeed. Because you've got to think like a designer to get that um, the human experience to be a success too. So oh, I could do an hour and a half on that conversation. Definitely, we can expand on this. So you've mentioned here the power of design skills in conveying messages, and it could be used deceptively. So we've especially seen the power of design on display in 2020 with COVID charts, climate change charts. Um, so with that, what do you think are the weapons, uh, to use that analogy, in the hands of designers uh, that they can use to convey their message impactfully? Um, what are the tactics that they can employ? I mean, there's a really famous example from Simon Scar. Uh, this was a, a chart called Iraq's Bloody Toll. came out in 2012. And it's a bar chart. It's, a, it's data about deaths in Iraq from conflict. And what Simon Scar did was point the bars downwards and color them a very evocative blood red uh, and use the title Iraq's Bloody Toll at the top. So when you look at it, it looks like a smear of blood dripping down the screen. It's really emotive. Um, and so what did, he, what did he do? He used color and orientation, you know, should bars should a bar chart point upwards or downwards? Well, normally it would go up, but he pointed them down. And then he used the color to create a visual metaphor. But then also importantly, he gave it a title, right? You, you know, just think about how reactive we are to titles these days. If you go to YouTube, you, you know, the, the 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 wording of a YouTube video title is so clickbaity these days. You know, you won't believe the things. And I'm a sucker for that. I'm like, oh, I better watch that. But we, you know, research shows that the first thing people look at when they look at a visualization is the is the title. So you have this moment to grab people's attention and tell them what you want them to take from a chart, right? Now, that's extremely powerful um, when I'm building dashboards or building PowerPoints that my CEO might see or that he might or she might even deliver because the chart appears, everybody reads the slide, the chart title, and then there's the chart that proves the point, right? Um, then when you think about this in, in 2020, obviously coming through the pandemic, oh, well, sorry, so to touch, so, so that, that's an example of some of the techniques you have, color, orientation, 
you know, size, all, all of that, the techniques. And what the pandemic has shown us is how carefully one must wield that power. So I, I'm based in the UK. You know, our, our government has had regular press conferences that have been that have led with charts. You know, it's the, the prime minister would say some words, and then he hands over to the chief scientific advisors who update the country, a nervous country, about this horrible pandemic. And you know, that team in the cabinet office in the UK had to work extremely hard to make sure the charts were neutral, because you know, any any perceived bias or influencing in that data visualization will get pounced upon by the opposition or by the media. And they'll say, you know, they're trying to make us think X and Y. And maybe they are, right? But they can't be seen to be in press conferences. So what's been interesting in the UK is that experience of seeing 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 the, the effort to reduce all the dials back to zero on on anything that is not neutral or you know they're going here's the facts we're trying to express them without opinion and so that's kind of the spectrum of power you can go from a black iraq's bloody toll which is full-on in your face you're going to think blood smearing down the screen to covid pandemic charts it's like we're just presenting the facts and there's a lot of uncertainty and we're making decisions based on these that's perfect and it really depends on the situation which is here a work context and what is the desired impact and analysis wants based on their visualization analysis right it's not always that's not universal, right? Because if if I'm building an exploratory dashboard that people can log on to and interact to track, you know, website visits or staff turnover, in that case, things have to be neutral because you're not really expressing an opinion about the data. It's just like here is an object you can use to track what's happening in the organization. But you know, a huge part of business is I'm going to tell, I'm going to go to my managers and convince them based on evidence to make a decision to change the organization. Uh, or I'm going to go to uh, the colleagues or, or my own team and say, you know, we need to make a change. In that case, I am going to use persuasive charts because I've got an opinion and an argument to convey. So I can use, um, I can then in, in a business situation, use that framing technique to sell my argument. And, you know, in a, in a healthy data culture, that's as powerful as me using emotive words. You know, I think it's going to be a great idea if we put this podcast in front of a million viewers, right? You know, I could say those words and you can go, well, we can have an argument with words. We can do that with data too. So it is possible to to do that in a business environment. But again, wielding the power without being deceptive and also everybody having the fluency with data to know how to sort of counter, how to process those arguments and have a data-driven conversation is powerful. I'm excited to unpack data literacy with you, but before we do that, obviously data visualization skills, engineering skills, design skills are all super important. Uh, But the last mile of analytics is really the narrative you weave, as you said here, with words. Uh, This is what has often been called data storytelling. Uh, Can you share your thoughts and best practices on data storytelling and how analysts can gain better adoption of their solutions? There's a couple of things that make my blood boil. One of them is when somebody copy and pastes a chart from one medium so and then paste it into PowerPoint. And the first thing that drives me in my head is when they don't even make it fill the screen, right? They just go copy, paste, and they present it, right? I'm 50 years old. My eyes are not what they were when I was 20, right? And 
I, you know, and this was a problem when we were in live meeting rooms. It's a problem now when we're looking at our laptops and these things. And when somebody says, if somebody says, as you can see on this chart, blah, blah, blah. If I can't see that, it's like you have failed in your job as a storyteller because I can't see your living chart. And, you know, so often I've been in presentations where a chart comes on screen and they say, oh, it's a bit small on the screen. And I'm like, if you have to say that, you are lazy because you have not thought about the storytelling power of actually using this data to drive change. Um, So that just drives me potty. So if you do nothing else with any chart you ever on a PowerPoint slide, at least make it fit the screen. Right. Secondly, it is when they say, oh, this chart's a bit complicated, but it shows blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there going, you've literally copy and pasted a dashboard onto a PowerPoint. It's got 10 charts on it and you know 96 pieces of information. How the hell am I supposed to know which bit of that you're telling, you're referring to? You know, your word, the words coming out of your mouth might be, it shows that sales are down uh, and we need to do X. And I'm just looking at, a mess of information. I have no idea what I'm doing. The reason these make my blood boil is because as a storyteller, if I'm going to stand in a, if I'm going to convey information in a meeting, in a presentation, in a keynote, in anything or an email, how does the end user know what they're supposed to be looking at on that screen at the time you look at it? Right? So thinking about storytelling is what is your narrative through any visual you put on a screen? If you're going to spend if you're going to put a chart on a screen and that slide's only going to be visible for three seconds, then that chart has to be understandable in about one and a half seconds. If it is, if it can't be, it's the wrong chart. If you really want to show a complicated chart that takes two minutes to explain it, spend two minutes explaining it and bring each element of the chart forward one at a time. You know, it's like, this is what the axis is. This is what the x-axis is. Each mark represents a country and the color represents the continent and the size represents population. And then you're bringing the audience along so so that you can actually explain the point. If anybody wants to see this done uh, the best way possible, go check out Hans Rosling's TED Talks because he was the master at this. Uh, and you know, I mean, there are loads of different techniques. You, you can there's loads of different techniques, but storytelling is absolutely vital because you're using data to try and drive change in your organisation by sharing insights. Every single visual you show has to be part of the narrative flow of that conversation point. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, don't make my blood boil. If you ever say, if you ever do a presentation and say to me, this chart's a bit complicated, but then I'm like, ah, you've let me down. In terms of driving that narrative, I think something that data scientists struggle with is fitting a narrative and finding that narrative structure uh, to their data or to their exploration. Is this something that can be templatized or is this a highly specific ad hoc problem that needs a highly specific ad hoc solution? Yeah, yeah yes and no, right. There's, it, it's difficult to say. I, I can't tell anybody what the right narrative process is for the thing they're doing because it all depends on what their specific process is. Right. But that's not very helpful to somebody learning out, is it? Uh, So, um, you know, my my good friend, Ben Jones, he used to be at Tableau and now runs dataliteracy.com. He did a great great set of content about the seven different types of story. And anybody who's familiar with fiction might know there are seven different types of story, the quest, the, uh, um, I can't 
Yeah, right. Um, and and he sort of did some work to think: how could you tell different data stories based on different approaches? Do you, you know? Do you start out with a big picture and zoom in? Do you start zoomed into a really low level piece of detail and then zoom out? Do you show progression over time? Do you, you know, and if showing progression over time, do you, can you bring drama about one data point through this? So there are ways in which you can think of the story. They will often lend themselves to presentations, you know, or narratives in email, um, you know, if you're doing reports, you know, what is, what is the re- narrative through a report? In dashboards, story stories slightly strange in dashboards because that dashboards are largely exploratory uh, facets. I'm going to go to the company sales dashboard to see what's happening in sales. But for me, a lot of the inspiration for dashboards comes essentially from comic books. I left school wanting to be a comic artist when I was 18. And a lot of the, the learnings from the world of comics is how they use a layout on a page to create a, a, a flow of time and direction. And I mean, if you get into the study of comics, it is amazing seeing the different ways they can create narrative flows with that page and frame structure. You know, so... It, on a dashboard, you're essentially going, you know, the top left is where people are going to look at first. And then you can largely follow a left to right, down a bit, left to right structure. The Gutenberg diagram is another design principle from print about how people look at pages. So you kind of want your most important thing in the top left and then more granular levels of detail towards the bottom and towards the right. It's not universal though, because you can play around with that kind of stuff. Given that we just discussed the data visualization and design skills needed to be a successful data analyst, I'd love to pivot more to discuss how this looks like from an organizational point of view. Obviously, bridging the gap between reality and what's possible in terms of making use of data at scale is very important for organizations. Uh, However, I'd argue that data literacy is the biggest obstacle to that value being realized, and we can discuss that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you define data literacy and what it means to be a data literate organization for you so uh, this is really important and i think there's various there's various levels of data literacy um i think largely as a as a definition being data literate is being able to do some or all of read consume and critique read consume critique and create visualizations right not everybody needs to be able to do that. I would say everybody in the org- in an organization needs to be able to be comfortable reading, you know, looking at and understanding what charts are showing. And and it's not a hard skill, but a lot of people just have not been taught that skill. You know, you know the subtleties of the way color can be used to influence things. The, which is the appropriate type of chart, and it, it is an important skill to learn to read. So being able to read and consume those, but also being able to critique them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research going that, that shows that people see charts as truths, right? It's hard to criticize a chart. Maybe I could criticize your paragraph of text, but you put it in a chart, so it must be true. So, yeah, it's a, it, absolutely. So being able to look at this, look at these and have that critical mindset that, you know, don't that you don't need to mistrust things, but you need to be able to question them uh, and then produce charts as well. Should every single person in the organization be able to use tools to produce visualizations? I mean, ideally, I'd say yes, but realistically, probably not. 
but uh, yeah, so so I think that they're, they're, they're the four key pillars. Um, and how do you test if your organization, where your organization is in that ability? It's it's really hard for people to self admit that they are not data literate. I mean, you know, you know, I I I don't have a problem with the term data li- literacy, but some people. Some people, I think, legitimately do because it's like, are you telling me I'm illiterate in this in this thing? It's like, you know, so there's a negative connotation to being illiterate. Um, so, you know, another phrase could be data fluency because fluency sort of has a has a has a baseline, which is I'm not very fluent and I'm really fluent, but I can still be at the baseline. Um, but the but the reason I raise that is because it's, it's actually quite hard to assess your organization's baseline. Uh, you know, you can do, you can survey users, you can ask them to self-assess, which is useful, and that can create a benchmark, which you can then change. Yeah, so I think that, that's a definition of data literacy. Trying to benchmark your organization is key. And then, well, then the next step is how do you improve that fluency? What we found at Tableau over many years is that uh, one of the great things is creating a community. You know, Tab- Tableau has this crazily excited and excitable community of analysts and geeks who just love using Tableau and love the field of analytics and the field of communication and engineering. And and we have seen that that generates a momentum in and of itself. We often say that our Tableau community won't let you fail. There's When, when people start getting involved, they ask questions and there's forums and Twitter and social media, video series, people will offer help. And there are many, many solutions out there. And what we've reckoned out, what we now see is when customers try and enable an internal community, then that is a really good way of creating a virtuous circle that sort of builds its own momentum. You know, one example, something I, I do at Tableau, we do a, it's called, we call it Viz Club. And what we do is we, we find a chart from the world and once a month, and we we just sit around and critique it. And the reason I the reason I run that is because it's a super low level barrier to entry. Right, anybody can come in and say whether they what they like or dislike about a chart, and it's really non intimidating for people who are lower down on that fluency track. You know, I could come in, I could make do a club and say, "Hey, it's the monthly Let's Hack Tableau Club." And instantly, I'm going to eliminate 90% of people because they're like, oh, not very good at Tableau yet, or I'm not so comfortable with analytics. And so it's a really high barrier of entry and quite an intimidating thing. So you can take really small baby steps. You know, formally training strategies, you know, build a, what is your data literacy program? How are you going to fulfill that, improve those four criteria? And there are plenty of training materials. You know, we have a free data literacy course. Obviously, Data Camp has loads of things. Um, so yeah, it's about building that strategy to improve everybody's level. That's really interesting when you mention the community building aspect of it. I think a lot of organizations sometimes forget the aspect of building a learning ecosystem rather than just, you know, dumping training courses onto uh, their workforce. Uh, This involves live trainings, meetups, expert talks, hackathons, and we found that works best even on our side with data camp customers, Um, especially when creating a data culture. If you were to design a data literacy program for for an organization, what would it look like? Uh, Of course, this is highly 
persona specific. So if you want to talk about, you know, the lower end of the data fluency spectrum, would you focus on a tools agnostic conceptual program, such as, you know, understanding use cases of data, or would you have a tool specific training in mind? I'd start tool agnostic. I think, you know, for the people who aren't producing charts, you know, they, for them, it's, it's a, how do they learn to read, right? And, you know, they, they will have been taught hopefully basic skills at school, but not the, the, some of the more subtle techniques. So it's like char, charts work. Fun, so a fundamental of data visualization is that the, the individual atoms that make up a chart, like a bar a, a bar or a line or a dot, uh, those things are called pre-attentive attributes. I mean, that, that's a bit of a generalization, right? But, but the concept of length or position or angle are things that we cognitively see instantaneously when we when we look at something in front of us and it's those pre-attentive attributes that enable us to make visualizations once you know things like that it suddenly means oh now i know the individual pieces i can actually understand how a chart is put together and then once you understand that that sort of super granular level of how a chart works it makes it easier to consume it um so i think Teaching those fundamentals is really important, and it it just allows you to then, you know, build up to words. I mean, it is. It's like learning to read. You learn at first. You learn letters, but then simultaneously, you're learning letters, but you're also learning words. You know, short words at the start, and then at the same time, you know, and then simultaneously, you're beginning to get sentence structure. So that's how we teach kids to read. We we kind of do this hodgepodge of the individual bits, the words, and the sentences, and then right. So and then as you mature it becomes writing essays, but also reading books, you know, and then eventually you get to university and not only you're reading books, you're writing books, but you're deeply thinking about uh, literacy and, uh, and and communication. And that's essentially the same framework for a data literacy program. How do you, you know, get to te- learn the absolute fundamentals simultaneously with practice, you know, put some of them together, maybe r- run a little bit before you can walk and then eventually just add more and more depth. Um, so I think, Taking that method model to your own strategy is great. At some point, soon after the fundamental bit, then tool, you know, obviously you've got to become a practitioner, at which point tools become important. Couldn't agree more. And here, circling back to something that you've also mentioned, I've seen you speak about uh, extending data literacy programs to schools in order to prepare future generations to work and think with data. Do you expand? Do you mind expanding on some of your thoughts here? Yeah, I've I've got two daughters, they're uh, teenagers now, and it's been quite funny. You know, that they have slightly more advanced data skills than their peers, um, because daddy's taught them or bored them, bored them a lot uh, with with all this data stuff. But it it is interesting watching them go through the experience of the UK uh, education curriculum, where they're encouraged to make three D exploded pie charts because they're funky, right? And you think, ah, so they actually. They have a relatively strong grounding of what well they have a, a grounding of what basic data is right and and the visualization is a thing but there's nothing about why it works right they're just told make some numbers build this thing so there's none of that, there's none of that foundational knowledge and I think that's the thing that's missing when you understand you know it's always more it's I find it more fascinating to know why something works than just do it right so if we could change the education curriculum to be a bit more about why these things work 
And then, you know, as, as we just, in the previous answer, if we can get them more to the how to critique and be a consumer of this information, then I think it's a really important thing to do at school because, you know, it's 2021, we've just had a pandemic, we're in a world of misinformation. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a scary time for, for kids coming into the world. And are we equipping them to be able to in, better interpret the world around them, the, the avalanche of information that's coming at them? I don't think we are. We're just, just telling them to make 3D pie charts when instead we could be building fluent data literate kids. Especially when you think about it from a future workforce readiness perspective, I think that a lot of organizations are doing the heavy lifting now and preparing their workforces for the future. But there needs to be modernization of the skills taught at the school level as well. I don't know. At Tableau, we've been doing, I mean, we've got a great academic program which helps students, but we've also been doing a a data for kids program as well, trying to come up with funky exercises, you know, interesting exercises to get kids thinking about uh, data literacy. I, I certainly did a few during the pandemic when we were homeschooling. And it's really amazing how you can get them to come at this world of data without without them going, oh, dad's talking about data again. Oh, you know, you can bring it to their lives without them quite realizing what you've done. <laughs> That's really wonderful. And we've also seen a lot of good success in data camp for classrooms and for colleges. Um, I'd like to circle back to dashboards here and maybe uh, and the role they play in democratization of data insights and maybe here play devil's advocate a bit. Um, how do you view the role of dashboards in enabling organization data literacy? Uh, similarly, what do you think are some of the drawbacks of dashboards? Do you think that there is a risk of having too many dashboards and information glut and this can hurt an organization's ability to make decisions with data and its entire data literacy program? Uh, you can bash the dashboards all you want. I mean, I think one of the biggest... Uh, one of the potential downsides of having written a book, the big book of dashboards about dashboards is that people then think I am an advocate that dashboards are the be all and end all of, of your BI strategy and nothing could be further than the truth. You know, I also do a whole presentation, a bit of content. There's a chapter in the book about don't build a dead end dashboard. You know, they are the start of the journey, not the end of the journey. Right. So uh, dashboards are amazing, right? Every organization uh, is gonna is go, is asking a question about their organization or their customers that they know they're going to ask every week or every month or even every year, right? You are going to monitor things. Is the website up or down? Is a sales tracking? Is turnover getting dangerously high or is turnover great? Right? Is staff turnover good or bad? That questions we, we want to know those every month. We're going to track them. So whatever you call it, whatever the vehicle is. You need some sort of monitoring display so that people can keep an eye on these key performance indicators or OKRs, whatever you want to call them. That said, if that's all your business has, oh my God, you failed completely, completely. Because, you know, think, I mean, think in your own organization, do you think in the next seven days, somebody is going to ask a question that you hadn't anticipated? And, if your answer to that question is no, then I, I mean, I'd love to see your organization. Every organization is dealing with uncertainty, resilience, and ad hoc things, right? I mean, the, the pandemic turned everybody upside down, and it was organizations that were, were really digitally strong had great resilience uh, because they were able to, 
respond quickly to things they hadn't anticipated. So at that point, a dashboard's useless. A dashboard is going to answer a dashboard answers three or four questions that you asked years ago, right? What about the question today? So you need this fluid, um, messy, exploratory, iterative, rapid response approach to data too, and that re- that requires strong data sources, skilled users, and literate people who can, or, you know, data fluent people who can ask the questions and respond to what they're seeing very very quickly to get to the ad hoc answers. Um, so. If, yeah, dashboards, holy cow, dashboards are a part of successful analytical strategy. You you are failing if you only build dashboards. Can you build too many? Yeah, that is also a big problem. Um, uh, and, you know, we see customers, they're like, we, we wanted to escape Excel hell and now we're in dashboard hell. It's like, yeah, that's, that, that's not great. But again, great processes, and this is where... Um, Actually, so architect, not data architecture, but being able to architect a good business intelligence stack and process is really important. What we do at Tableau is <clears throat> we have anything that gets published has an expiry date, and you know as that's getting closer, we'll start getting notifications, then emails, and being like, "It's going to get deleted," and nobody's been looking at it. So, you, so we we sunset a lot of work um, because we recognise dashboards die, right? They do. Dashboards die. It's it's ongoing creative destruction continually uh, is really part of the strategy to keep things fresh. That's great. I want to harp on here the importance of resilience and agility. I think not a lot of people discuss this as being a part of a data-driven organization, uh, but it's very important to kind of instill that culture of resilience and agility. So what are the ways that you think you can forge the sense of resilience? Success in a data culture, we, there's, there's three things. You need to have an agile system, right? So that's about creating that architecture that has the, the, the robustness of data sources, but also people, the ability for people to find things and respond quickly. There has to be a high-level proficiency. So that's the skill base across an organization, the data fluency, but also the hard technical skills of using the platform you've implemented. And then the community is the third uh, aspect of success. Um and you know that that's about having people who are engaged. In order for all of that to succeed, you also need uh, buy-in from the top. We've seen we see customers that succeed when the executives are in on this too. They don't have to be making dashboards to be bought in, but they have to be using the data and really buy in. You know, we see a lot of failure where um, something grows organically in a small part of the organization, but they can't. And they get kind of, yeah, yeah, keep going from the top. But they don't get that organizational buy-in. It has to become a strategic, data has to be a strategic asset in order to drive that success. Um, so again, it's data literacy, data fluency, ensuring you've got the engineering skills and the architecture installed, the BI strategy to allow flexibility uh, and rapid response. And it, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, that's awesome, especially executive buy-in and leading by example. They're so important. Now, pivoting to discuss the future, um, where do you view the role of AI and automation coming into play uh, within organizations? Um, you know, there's often a lot of discussion around intelligence augmentation and, you know, um, <clears throat> augmented analytics. Uh, where do you fall in the automation versus augmentation debates? What are some of the key trends you're excited about in the BI and AI space? 
I, I'm all in favor of AI that augments a user and gets them from A to B quicker. Um, I think most, certainly the BI industry is investing heavily in that and Tableau is too. Uh, for example, we've got Ask Data and Explain Data are two new technologies that, well, actually they're, several, they're many years old now, but they're really iterating fast. Um, Ask Data, for example, is a natural language interface to a data set. The, in its latest iteration, I'm really excited about it because it, it, you know, what I fell in love with in Tableau 14 years ago was this ability to drag and drop things around this interface and just just be in complete control of the data. Um, but you had to have an analyst's mindset and an analyst's skill set to really embrace that. And, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have done. But if you're not a data nerd who knows the difference between a discrete and a continuous data field, that's a little bit intimidating. Ask Data now lets you type in a question, a bit like typing in something into Google, and you get an instant response. But what I love about what we've done with it is that it, it, it can, you, you, as you type the sentence, it becomes something you can click on and iterate to change each part of the phrase of what you've written. And, and for me, it's the, it's the perfect extension of the power the analysts have had putting into the hands of uh, you know, non-analysts, just normal business workers. And I had, I, I, I don't know if it's an epiphany, but re- recently I realized that, you know, the end goal of this is that there's always going to be a space for analysts in the Tableau world, right? Because there's always going to be more than this. But eventually you'll get to the point where people stop being excited about using Tableau, right? Or whatever, or any other tool that gets there. And I'm like, what? Andy Cockgrove saying, I want a world where people are not excited to use Tableau, huh? Let me explain. I use Microsoft Word every day to write my, write my blogs and my content, and I use PowerPoint uh, and Google Slides. Right? I don't come out at the end of the day and go, oh, I had a great day using Microsoft Word. I just come out at the end of the day going, I wrote some great content, right? You know, because that's what you do. Because the tool, the tool does, just does its job. You know, I don't, right? And so with Ask Data, as we put data in the hands of more people, they're not going to be, they're not, they're hopefully, you know, I think the great goal is they have been augmented to the point that they don't have to think about the tool they're using. They're just asking, hey, I asked some questions about my data today. And AI, machine learning, uh, really, really help empower that. You know, and again, our integrations with Slack are going to improve to the point that you can do this all in Slack. And and that's driven by AI, machine learning. And yeah, to the point that people stop thinking they're using Tableau, they're just asking questions of data. And that's great, you know? So, so yeah, I think I'm saying I'm campaigning for a world where people are no longer excited about using Tableau. Yeah, that somehow seems strange, but uh, <laughs> hopefully people know what I mean. <laughs> Definitely see where you're coming from, especially when there's this kind of, you know, ready-to-use infrastructure to support data-driven decision-making through a lot of these tools that you're discussing. Um, so given that, I also agree that there's always a place for a data analyst and an augmented data analyst, as you say. What do you think is the most useful skill uh, that analysts need to know in a world where a lot of, you know, simple data workflows are either automated or semi-automated? Well, I think... A, 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 another good metaphor is Instagram, right? And, and, so, and mobile phones. You know, mobile phones have made us all professional photographers, and we can do, you know, we can do filtering techniques that traditionally would have been done by 
true masters, uh, you know, true experts in the developing lab, right? They could, they would apply things as they process photos that we can now do in the space of a click. And in some ways, that's again the goal, right? But but there is still a space for professional photographers, right? You know, you know, the, the, um, so that's great. That is still going to be the case for analysts. Um, there will always be the unanticipated sides of things. There will always be, I suspect, there will always be uh, edge cases that natural language just won't be able to uh, query, right? Um, so I think, you know, the life of the analyst is not under threat. <clears throat> In terms of skill sets, you know, if I'm really honest, I, I'm str- I, I'm not sure I have a, good, a, a really solid prediction of what the next skill sets are going to be because much as it, the reality of what I see is a BI industry creating really advanced technology um, that promises complete revolution. When I go to customers, 90% of them or thereabouts are still using PDF and Excel data sources, right? And so, and they're looking at this AI stuff and going, I still have to copy and paste the table for this PDF into a CSV file and then connect it. So much as the cutting edge of the industry is, you know, wow, it's sci-fi. Actually, most customers, <laughs> it's going to take decades for them to chase. So I think um, the traditional traditional skills are still going to be valid for a significant time in the future. Awesome. Finally, Andy, as we wrap up on an inspirational note, do you have any final call to action for today? If, if anything, if anyone's listening to this, I would just say find a community and join it. Um, and, and so, I mean, examples, we have Tableau Public is our uh, free free place where you can share visualizations. And we've got things like Workout Wednesday, Viz for Social Good, all these social projects where people hammer out and play around with data sets and share their findings together. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's really enriching because joining that community, it exposes yourself to other people. It puts you in a learning mode straight away. But it also puts you in a teaching mode straight away because anytime you share some, some work you've done, you're going, well, this is my interpretation of the task. And, you know, something we've learned many times over the years about const- critiquing in a constructive way is really important. So being able to hear critique but add critique and, you know, in with the motivation of elevating everybody else is hugely beneficial. If, particularly on Tableau Public, but others as, as well, you will also build a portfolio that shows the progression of your skill. Um, and, you know, it's, it's slightly strange that from an engineer's perspective, it's like, I, I don't need to have a portfolio of, of my work. But from the design perspective, you know, graphic designers have portfolios. So, uh, yeah, join a community. Thank you so much, Andy. Really appreciate you coming on DataFrame and sharing your insights. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode of Data Framed. Thanks for being with us. I really enjoyed Andy's insights on visual analytics and data storytelling best practices. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. Our next episode will be with Vishnu Ram, VP of Data Science and Engineering at Credit Karma. I hope it'll be useful for you and catch you next time on Data Framed.